Good morning again. I would invite everybody to turn their Bibles over to Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to continue our, our march through the book of Hebrews. I am really enjoying uh, this study. I hope that you are. The book of Hebrews is uh, just chock full of so much good for us today. I'm going to start by reading a quote from C.S. Lewis. Many of you are familiar with his, his writings. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. By it, I see everything else. That's what the Word of God does for us. It lightens, it enlightens, it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we, we believe in it not only because we see it, but because by it, we see everything else. Hebrews chapter 6, have you ever started a project, like a big project, and you knew it was going to take a while, but you were so excited to get started on it, maybe you're thinking, every weekend I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to get to work on this, I'm going to be able to spend time doing it, and so you gather your materials, you go to the store, maybe you buy lumber, you buy some hardware, whatever it is, and you're so excited to be able to you know, use some of your free time to work on the project, and, and you do, and it takes all weekend, and you get back to work, but you're looking forward to it next weekend, and you get back out, start working on it, but, but after a while, you realize, hmm, maybe this is going to take a little longer than I had anticipated, and now I've got to go get maybe more material, and maybe it's, maybe it's going to cost a little bit more than I had originally thought. But you know, it's, it's going to be worth it. I'm just going to keep working. It's going to be worth it one day. But then you get up that one Saturday morning and you feel the energy starting to ebb away. And you don't have the same excitement that you had when you first started. In fact, you kind of wish something else would come along, something new, something novel that you could put your energies into because you sort of you sort of lost the excitement for that project. Does, does that ring a bell with anybody? Anybody ever had a project like that? Yeah. But you keep working at it because you know that if you'll just put in a few more weekends, maybe a few more months, that it'll be finished and it'll all be worth it. I think the Hebrew writer realizes that the folks that he's writing to are in that situation. They've begun following Jesus. They're excited. There's a newness to it. There's a passion. But after a while, some of that passion begins to ebb away. And if we're honest, listen, church, if we're honest, the Christian life is like that sometimes, is it not? We, we, we're excited. We've, we've been baptized into Christ. And I'm going to tell the world what Jesus has done for me. 
And then days turn into weeks, into months, and into years. And sometimes we feel that energy, that excitement slipping away from us. We don't have the same passion, the same zeal. We ought to. The more we walk with God every day that we're we're learning and walking with the power of the Holy Spirit, it ought to be drawing us into a closer, a deeper walk with God. But there's always the, the tug and the pull of the world saying, come back, come back to us. We'll take you. We'll accept you. All of that, that's, that's not worth it. And I think the Hebrew writer is writing to encourage a people that have made a profession of faith, but they're tempted to go back. Go back to Judaism for some of them. Maybe just go back to a worldly life. And so he uh, writes them to encourage them, but also to warn them. We've seen that several times throughout this letter. Uh, Warnings and encouragements. Hebrews chapter 6. Let's dive into our text this morning. We're picking up in verse 4. This is the word of the Lord. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance, Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. This is a very difficult passage. Uh, There are are people on both sides of the issue. And let me just lay this out for you, okay? There are good, godly people that look at this passage who love God and who say that this is about people who have made a profession of faith, but they were never truly saved to begin with. And when you look at how he has invoked the children of Israel, when we look back at at the children of Israel, when they came out of of Egypt, Moses led them through uh, the Red Sea on dry land. They saw the power of God. They were enlightened, if you will, by a pillar of cloud the pillar of fire. They ate of the, the gift from God, that, that manna that fell. Seventy of the elders were even uh, filled with the Holy Spirit for a time in the presence of God, but yet they did not enter the land of promise because of their unbelief. Many will say that this is like that. They tasted the heavenly gift, but they didn't really digest it. They did not ingest it. And so there are, there are people that will say, 
this is talking about those kind of people that just made a profession that were maybe loosely tied to a religious community, a body of believers, but then sometime later they left and they went back to the world, and so therefore they were never really saved to begin with. And listen to me, there are passages that, that speak in Philippians that talks about he who began a good work in you is going to see that to completion. If, if, if God has begun this in you and you've given your life to him, he's going to see it through to completion. Uh, Romans chapter 8, the apostle Paul, he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Does he not? Nothing, he says, neither height nor depth, angels or demons, principalities, none of that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So how do we deal with a text like this? Those who have been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit. This sounds to me like someone who has really been saved, who've given their lives to God. They've been enlightened. That's, that's, a, that's an idiom. We, we talked about idioms a couple of week, weeks ago on Wednesday night. There's an idiom used there that, um, that this is, is talking about baptism and salvation. They've been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. Has an unregenerated, unsaved person ever really shared in the Holy Spirit? I don't think so. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Let me share a passage with you in 2 Peter. I don't want to belabor this point because I, I want to say something here about this in just a moment. 2 Peter chapter 2. Let me just read this to you. Beginning of verse 1. There were false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. Paul talks about, uh, there in, in the Corinthian letter, that we should honor God with our bodies because we don't belong to ourselves. We've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's talking to, to people that have, have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. Now, at the very end of, of 2 Peter chapter 3, the very end of this letter, verse 17, he says, Therefore, dear friends, since you already know, know this, be on your guard, be on your guard, so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men. Why would he say, be on your guard, so that you won't be carried away? Because it's a possibility to be carried away by the teaching of lawless men, right? And notice this. So that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. To fall from your secure position. So it sounds to me like, brothers and sisters, that The possibility exists for those who have truly given their lives to Christ, who have truly been baptized, regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, that they could turn 
go back to the world and fall. Fall away from the grace of God, from their secure positions. I believe that that is what the scripture is teaching us. But let me say this to you, okay? When I grew up as a child, I've always grown up in the Church of Christ. This is my, this is my tribe. This is my faith tradition. I love it, and I always will. Warts and all, you're my people, and, and we're in this thing together, okay? But this is what I was, this is what I was taught. This is, let me say that again. I don't know if I actually, actually was taught this, but this is what the undercurrent was. This is what we all believed. That if you were truly saved, you were a child of God, bought by the blood of the Lamb, buried with Christ in baptism, having your sins washed away, that if you sinned, you were lost. If you got angry, something happened, you got angry, uh, you, you said some words, some choice words that you shouldn't have said, you got angry, about you, you were lost. You, you lost your salvation. And you were lost until you prayed and asked God to forgive you. And then once you did that, you were saved again. And so I grew up with that mindset. It was a constant roller coaster. You're in, you're out. You're saved, you're lost. I do not believe the Bible teaches that. I do not believe that that's the way it happens. If we are in Christ, there's no condemnation. The blood of Jesus is continually cleansing us of all of our sins. Now, the fact remains that if we're in Christ and we do sin, there should be godly sorrow. And what does godly sorrow do? It brings you to repentance. And what is repentance? It's turning away from that sin and not doing it anymore, not wanting to do it anymore. But God has already forgiven you in Christ Jesus. The blood of Jesus is continually cleansing us of our sin. That's the power of the blood of Jesus. So can a person who is truly saved lose their salvation? I believe it's possible. But listen to me. I believe it's a lot harder than the way I was taught growing up. I don't think we lose our salvation just because we fall and we stumble. We get angry or we say something that we shouldn't or we have a thought that, that is not godly. I don't think we lose our salvation for that. But I do believe that it's possible. It blows my mind to think about it. Why would someone ever turn away from God? But I do believe, and I think the Hebrew writer is, is, is talking about this, that you've tasted the goodness of God, you've been enlightened, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, but because we are clothed in flesh, the tug of the world, the tug of Satan is constantly pulling on us, pulling us, come back, come back, we'll, 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 we'll accept you back. We don't care if you've made a profession for Jesus, just come back and follow us. Be a part of us, we'll accept you. Satan is always making things glitter and shine, and, 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 and our flesh is looking at, uh, looking at that. And there's always the pull to go back. 
That's why I think the Hebrew writer is writing this, because he's writing to a people that have begun to walk with Christ, but there's the temptation to go back, to possibly fall away. I just think it's a lot harder to lose our salvation than the way I was taught and the way I was raised. Does that make sense? Now listen to me. Let me me just say this. I don't want to belabor the point. If you believe that Jesus, that, that, that the writer here is saying that people have started to follow Jesus, but they fall away that they were never truly saved, if you believe that, we're still brothers and sisters. That's, that's, not a, that's not a point that I think we ought to divide over. We've divided so much about so many things. Because here's, here's, here's the bottom line, okay? Here's the bottom line. If a person makes a profession of faith and they're tied to a religious body, a community of believers, and then they somehow go back to the the world, living a worldly lifestyle, They, they just turn their backs on Christ. If they were never really saved to begin with, what is their condition now? They're lost, right? They're lost. What if a person is truly saved and then turns their back on Christ, walks away, what condition are they in now? They're lost, right? The condition is the same. So whether they were truly saved or not, we leave that for God to decide. I am so thankful that God is our judge and that I'm not the judge and you're not the judge. I'm so glad that God is our judge and he alone is our judge. So we leave those things to God. I don't want us to divide or separate over things like that. We've done that too often in the past. And we we are not making a united effort to show our world the love of Jesus Christ when we do those things. Somebody could say amen if you wanted to. Mm. But notice what he says in verse 9. He says, I don't think think that this is you. I'm telling you you as a warning, but but I don't believe this is is the way that you're living. Verse 9, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case. There's There's that phrase, better things, Hebrews, the book of better things. We are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. I'm telling you this as a warning, but I don't believe that, you're, that that's you. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. He says, I, I trust that, that you're loving, you're working, you're helping people, and God's, that's not going to go unnoticed. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. You see, we don't want to ever find out whether a person can lose their salvation. We don't want to know that. We want to be diligent. We want to remain faithful. We want to continue doing what we started doing so that we can make our hope sure. Because we, don't, we do not need to go through this life wondering 
Am I saved? Am I not? Am I in? Am I out? That's no way to live the Christian life. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. We don't have to doubt that. We just need to live a life that's pleasing, to be faithful, to continue on what we started. And he says, we, want, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. He writes that because we're prone to that. People start things and then they don't finish them. We begin a good, a good work, but then we don't see it through. We begin a project, but then you come to my house and the deck is half finished and there's a boat in the backyard and, you know, we got all these things and we've started, but we don't finish. He knows that we're prone to that. I don't want you to be lazy, but I want you to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what is promised. And so now he, he, he talks about Father Abraham, the, the father of, of faith. He says, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. I love that. Saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. You remember when God made this promise? If you go back to Genesis chapter 22, when God made that promise uh, to him, do you remember what was happening? God had called on Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. To sacrifice his son, Isaac. Do you remember how long it took from the time that God promised Abraham that he would have this son of promise to the time that, that it actually happened? Do you, do you remember how long that was? 25 years 25 years from the time God made the promise to the time that Isaac was born. Have you ever prayed and waited for 25 years? Have you ever been that diligent and that patient to pray for something and to continue to pray for 25 years? There's someone very near and dear to me. I've been praying for a lot longer than 25 years. That they would give their heart and give their life to Jesus. And it has not happened. But I'm still praying. As long as there is life, as long as there is breath, I think there's hope. And so I keep praying. Abraham waited patiently. Didn't do everything right in the interim period, okay? They, they made, he made some mistakes, okay? Tried to, well, he listened to his wife, and that's where he went wrong, okay? I'm just going to say that. I'm just going to say that, okay? 
I'll, I will pay the price for that later. But that's the truth. He listened to his wife and it got him in trouble. But he waited patiently, listen to me, church, 25 years. And then God gave him his son. And now God has asked him to sacrifice this son of promise, to kill his son. And he's in the midst of doing what God has called him to do. And an angel stays his hand. And God says, now I know. Now I know. I can see your heart. I know your faith. And he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. And all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed by your seed. God made that promise to Abraham and to his seed. And that seed is Christ. The Galatian letter tells us not to many seeds, but to one seed. And that seed is Christ. How much time do I have? Oh, I got time. Verse 16, men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. See, when someone, even in our world today, we, we respect when someone takes an oath. When someone puts their hand on the Bible, they say, I swear by, by God that I'm going to tell the truth. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. That, that ends all argument. Okay? I mean, what else can you do? I super-duper swear. I mean, I, I really, really, really swear. No. You take an oath, and that ends all argument. Now, it doesn't mean that people haven't lied under oath, but it should end the argument there. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it by an oath. God, he, he, double, he doubles down on this thing, okay? God swears by himself. There's no one greater. God can't swear by anything greater than himself. Don't you love that? That's the God that we serve. He has to swear by himself because there is no one like him. He has no peer. There is none greater. That's the God I serve. But he also takes an oath. It's as if God is putting his name, his integrity on the line. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have fled to take hold of this hope that we may be greatly encouraged. The verbiage that he uses here is that same idea uh, of in, in the old law, in the Old Testament, that uh, they were told to set up cities of refuge. Today we hear about sanctuary cities. How's that, how's that going for you? You know, not, not going real well right now. But they were told to set up cities of refuge so that 
If a man killed another man by accident, it wasn't malicious, he didn't mean to, it wasn't intentional, but it happened, it was an accident, but yet the avenger of blood was angry and, and wanted to take that person's life, that person could flee to a city of refuge. Numbers, I think, chapter around 33, uh, Joshua chapter 20, look that up, the, the cities of refuge. The person would plead their case to the elders, and when they would, they would figure out that it was, it was not malicious, it was not intentional, they would keep them in the city. If they ever left the city, they were on their own. The avenger of blood could come and take their life. But as long as they stayed in the city, they were safe. But listen, they had to stay in that city of refuge until the high priest died, until the death of the high priest. Only then could they go back to their own property, to their own land. But they had to stay there until the death of the high priest so they could have that protection. Notice this. We who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Firm and secure. Just as they fled to that city of refuge, they knew as long as they remained there that they were safe, okay? We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. You remember we talked a couple of weeks ago about the holy of holies? In the temple, there was the holy place where the priest would minister. But once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, he would make an offering for himself so that he would be cleansed of his sins so that he could approach. But even then, he had to approach in a cloud of incense and smoke to enter into the presence. And he, he went behind the curtain. There was a veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Because the holiest place, the holy of holies, is where the, the king of the universe, where, where our God would, would say he would, he would come down and he would dwell there between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. That's why it's called the mercy seat. The high priest would, would enter into that place. Notice what the Hebrew writer says about Jesus. We have this anchor this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. Jesus is our man in heaven. He has he's gone behind the curtain. He's entered into the inner sanctuary where a man should not be able to go, but he has gone as, as one of us to represent us before the Father. He is still a man in heaven, and he will remain that way throughout all eternity. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. 
You see, Jesus wasn't of the tribe of Levi. He couldn't be a priest in the ordinary sense. But because of his faithfulness, because of his faithfulness to God, he has been, he, and, and the life that he gave and sacrificed on our behalf, because of that, God has appointed him high priest. And he's a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So follow this. Those who fled to the city of refuge, they had to stay there. They, they, they couldn't leave until the death of the high priest. But Jesus is a forever priest. We're not looking for him to die. He's already done that. And guess what? God raised him from the dead. He will never die again. And so he is our high priest forever and ever. And because of that, he has gone before us. He's our forerunner. He's done what we couldn't do. He's paved the way for us so that we too could enter into the holiest of holies, into the very presence of God by the blood that he shed for us. Isn't that beautiful? Doesn't that make you just want to say, thank you, Jesus? Jess Stewart was a writer. He wrote about a young man many years ago. The first man to ever go through college. His father was a farmer. He really needed his help on the farm, but he was so proud of his son for, for going to school, and, and he worked extra jobs to help pay to send his son to college. His son graduated college. He was, he was a teacher back when teaching was a good profession. <laughs> he became a school teacher. And um, between his house uh, and the little farm uh, and, this, and the little schoolhouse, there was a big field. It was grown over with, with grass and weeds, but he, he would have to cross that field to get to, uh, to, get to his little one-room schoolhouse to become a teacher. His father was so proud of him. He got up early on the first day of school, showered and shaved and put on his best suit and was getting ready to, to go be a teacher for the first day. And he sat down at the breakfast table and his father was nowhere to be found. But that was not uncommon because his father was often out before even the break of dawn to get ready and, and to do things that you got to do on a farm, right? He ate his breakfast and he was getting ready, got his satchel and his books and was getting ready to head off. And his father walked in. His bib overalls were just drenched from head to toe, just wet, wet as they could be. His father said, son, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of what you've become. And Jess Stewart says the young man walked out. And from the edge of the farm, from the edge of the farm where they lived, he looked over to the schoolhouse and there was a path that his father had stomped down the grass all the way from their house to that little schoolhouse so that his son would not be soaking wet when he first arrived on his first day of school. His father had gone before him, and he'd made a path for his son. Jesus 
the Son of God, has gone before us. He's made the path straight. He's gone into the Holy of Holies on our behalf. And he makes it possible for us to be in relationship with the Father. And because of that, we have an anchor for the soul. Firm and secure, his name is Jesus. The sweetest name on mortal tongue, Jesus. I do this from time to time, but I want you to say his name with me. Say Jesus. Jesus. Say it again. Jesus. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you have entered into the Holy of Holies on our behalf. That we can approach the Father by your power, by your authority. We trust you and we love you. We pray in your name. Amen. Many of you know, because you've seen it on Facebook, um, I got a text yesterday from Eugene Embry. Some of you may not even really know them. Eugene and Amy Emery and Embry and her mom, Carol, have placed their membership with us. Eugene sent me, sent me a text, and he said that Amy had been in a very bad car accident, and he was on his way to Litchfield, Kentucky. We got through a supper, and I was sitting outside, and it was so beautiful last night. I was just sitting there enjoying the cool of the evening, and my phone rang, and it was Eugene telling me that Amy had passed from that car accident. Just like a, um, you know, you've been punched in the face. You just, what, what's happened here? What's happened? And I've had, and I've had a, just a, a heaviness on me, you know, since that moment, I, I, just hearing his voice and, and crying and telling me about Amy and her passing. And I thought, how, how appropriate that our text would be here in Hebrews chapter 6 this morning, an anchor for the soul. You see, everything else pales when you think about our life. James says, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. So we just live today. We live today for our King, for our Savior. All the words you can say in a moment like this, they're just, I don't know, they, they seem kind of shallow. But Amy, I believe with all of my heart, has an anchor for her soul. Yes, we'll see her again. Yes, she's in a better place. Yes, she's no longer in pain. But Eugene and Carol have got some tough, tough days ahead of them. And we, as a body of people, I think God will use us to help be that anchor for their souls during the coming weeks and coming months. And I trust that we will that God will give us the wisdom to know how best to, to minister to them.